Good morning, and greetings from the state of Arizona, which is about 108 degrees today, but we're told to tell you it's a dry heat that burns our backside. I <laughs> don't believe a word of it. And greetings from Phoenix Seminary. I would love to talk to you about coming, take some classes or taking some classes from Phoenix Seminary online, but I'm invited here to talk to you about wisdom from the literature, the wisdom literature of the, of the scriptures, you know. What, when you think of wisdom, what, what do you think, what is wisdom? I've always said all wisdom is is accumulation of, boy, I'm not going to do that again, you know, and it takes a little bit of time to, to make enough mistakes, but, but indeed there, there are other ways to learn it, uh, not just discovery from, from the world that beats on you, but from the very revelation of the wisdom literature of the scripture. Paul prays that you would grow both in knowledge and, and wisdom. Wisdom is an art. It is a skill at knowing how to live life, how to put the dots together and connect them from choices we make and the consequences, from, from behavior and, and the results. If you can predict beforehand how things would turn out based on what you decide or what you're going to do, wouldn't that help a little bit? You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, he didn't want it to spin into total chaos. So he instilled physical laws into this universe. And they're really easy to believe, and we discover them really quickly. If you were on top of the building and you jumped off, which way are you going to go? These are easy questions, all right? Thank you for you had your coffee. Down! Now, what if you do not agree with the law of gravity? Which way are you going to go? You can debate it all the way down. Well, in the same way there are physical laws, God also, so he would not spin morally out of control in chaos, he instilled moral laws that are just as real in this universe. And so to discover these moral laws is really what wisdom is all about. I tend to be a positive person by nature to the irritation of a lot of people around me. I've been told that I am obnoxiously cheerful at times. My, my wife says I'm really a lot of fun in small dosages. So if you just hang around me a little bit at a time, you can really have a good time. But most of the people that I tend to irritate are the people who tend to be unhappy people. People who are miserable, disappointed, little bitter with, with life. You know the ones I'm talking about, even Christians who look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. I mean, they're just the ones that life has beat on them. There's been enough accumulation of disappointment that their world just seems kind of empty. I have people in my life, on my staff, and they think they are there to make sure I don't get too happy. There, I have people in our financial department that wants to make sure I always know how much trouble we're in. And they always want to remind me that that light at the end of the tunnel just may be an oncoming train. You, you have some in your life as, as well. Well, have you ever read the comic strip, Peanuts? I know that's a dumb question. Of course, everybody has. We all have our favorite uh, character. There's Charlie Brown, Lucy, Linus, Peppermint Patty, Schroeder, and of course, the most popular of all, Snoopy himself. But the creator of those characters that we've all fallen in love with and identify with, Charles Schultz, he died in the year 2000. And there's been a recent biography on his life that I had to read. I didn't know this, but that I'm told that there was, he had a hundred million readers in thousands of newspapers by 1971. In the year 1989, the man made $62 million. 
And then he settled in for an annual income between 26 and $40 million a year for the next 10 years or the rest of his life. Now, this guy ought to have been happy. But he described himself as not so much depressed as romantically disappointed. In other words, he felt that unhappiness was funny, happiness was not, and that he said the genius of his characters, now catch this, because if you know the characters, you know what he's talking about. The genius of his characters was that they had this lifelong dissatisfaction with life, which he says, quote, the stuff of which adulthood is made of. Now, I know we live in a dangerous, disappointing world. But is it really designed by God to, to snap all the enjoyment of it out of our lives? We forget that God's given us two gifts, this life and the next life. Some Christians are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. And you forget that God gave us five senses. We can smell, touch, hear, feel. Here, we, because we are here to extract enjoyment from this first gift that God's given us. But how, how do you do that? What is the skill? What is the art? What is the wisdom of extracting enjoyment from this first gift that we live in with all the disappointment that's around us? Well, the Apostle Paul, he understood the secret to it all. He wrote about it when he wrote a thank you letter to the Philippians. And, and here he's in prison. A lot of reversals. Life is not really good at this time. Little church in Philippi. He helped start this thing from a women's Bible study. They send one of their pastors 600 miles by foot all the way to Rome to try to encourage Paul because they think he should be all depressed. He writes his book of Philippians, which is really a book of joy. And all joy is, is the absence of fear. And he writes this letter back to them, sends it through Timothy to thank them. And he says this in verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at last you revived your concern for me. He says in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. Interesting, this is something he learned. Contentment is not something that's just going to happen. You get old enough, you just naturally become content. Not so. Paul says this is something he, he learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Interesting, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having an abundance and suffering need, so I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that famous verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's in this content of this word of contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret. I've learned the wisdom of a satisfied mind. Now, where did Paul learn this? Say, well, maybe God gave it directly. Yeah, but God probably did it through revelation. Because Paul was a rabbi, Rabbi Saul, who studied under under the great Rabbi Gamaliel, and they would teach all the young rabbis to basically memorize the Hebrew canon. And especially the wisdom literature, those five books in the Old Testament sandwiched right between historical and prophetic books. And, and, and one of these books is written by, well, two or three, by Solomon himself, the wisest man who ever lived. And I believe Paul learned the secret from the very journal of Solomon. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. I know if you love Jesus, you have your Bibles this morning. So open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the personal journal of Solomon. 
And this guy, wealthiest guy living at the time. He's king. He can do anything he wants. And he's been given a double portion of wisdom from God himself. This guy, his life was a fantasy. Any fantasy you ever dreamt of, this guy lived out. He had riches, glory, fame. The guy had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Gentlemen, that's a thousand women in his life, and we're not going to go there. (laughs) He had magnificent homes and pools and gardens. The ancient historian Flavius Josephus tells us that he had chariots and horses and horsemen. And what he would do is these young men who would ride and drive his chariots had long hair. And from time to time, they would sprinkle gold dust in their hair and take the chariots out so that their hair would glisten in the sunlight. Plop right in the middle was Solomon himself in his glorious chariot. I mean, this, would you not want to add this to your testimony? In, in, in his own words, he said, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Wouldn't you love to say, well, in my BC days, I had a thousand women. The point being is that this guy had it all. And so at the end of his life, he comes to the end of his life and he takes like all his diaries, puts them together in a journal. And of course, the journal is entitled here in our book, Ecclesiastes, which causes a whole lot of folks to never read it. That's why it's the widest part in your Bible. And usually it's because of the way it starts. People skip over reading Solomon's journal because it starts with vanity, vanity. All is vanity, which makes you think, Myrtle, let's read another book. This one probably just doesn't work, you know. And the fact is, the word vanity is mistranslated by by different translations. NIV translates it meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. Boy, you think, boy, yeah, that goes over like a pregnant pole vaulter. Yeah, let's spend a month and read that book. So hardly anybody ever reads the personal journal of Solomon. Wisest man ever lived, lived it all, and there he is telling what he learned. Well, the word here, vanity, is translated vanity, is actually the Hebrew word havel. And havel does not mean meaningless. This is not a negative, pessimistic book. But rather, the word means vaporous. He says, what I've learned about life is that it will pass by like a vapor. If you're going to extract enjoyment from life, you better learn the wisdom, the discipline, the art of the moment. Because in the same way you would enjoy fragrance or perfume, you enjoy it not in the future or the past, you enjoy it in the moment. So you're never going to live life in the future, you can plan on it. You you, you can learn from the past, but you're never going to live there. So if you're going to extract enjoyment of living then you better understand the wisdom of how do you extract enjoyment from this life we live in from moment to moment. I've always viewed it like a a big conveyor belt with apples. Every 24 hours you get an apple. We have all kinds of apples in our home, pictures, sculptures, to remind us of this truth. You're standing behind a conveyor belt. Every 24 hours you get an apple. Now some apples are big, luscious, red. Some some are rotten. Some have a little protein, a little worm in them. You got good apples, bad apples, but every 24 hours a day, you get an apple. Now people respond usually one of three ways. Either they're always thinking about the apples that have already passed by. Boy, that apple in 67, I'll tell you, that was a good year. I was a quarterback for the high school team back 40 years ago. Let me tell you that path. You know, they live, and yet they're miserable because they're living in the past. 
Or you've got the other people who are always looking down the conveyor belt thinking, when am I going to get my apple, big apple? Boy, when my ship comes in, when we pay off the mortgage, when I retire, when I get that job, we get that big house, then we're going to be happy. Meanwhile, miserable. Meanwhile, what's happening? The apple right there every day in front of you goes right by untouched. Untouched. And so Solomon begins by saying, life is vaporous of vapor. And it will slip through your fingers and you will actually never enjoy this first gift because you never learn how to extract enjoyment from the movement. You see, it was, it was Paul himself in one of his two last writings to Timothy, pastoral writings, is Timothy. Tim, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, those who are wealthy in your church, that means you have some discretionary funds. He says, teach them not to put their hope in riches because 2007 came and went. But rather, he said, put your hope in God, who, catch this, has given all things to be enjoyed. God is not this cosmic killjoy, looking up there from heaven going, all right, that's fun, that's a good time, that's great, we'll call that evil. And, and this, so that's a drill boring, that's horrible, we'll call that good. No wonder, like I said, people act like God is just trying to destroy us. No, no. God is a God who gives good gifts, a Father who authors good gifts in this life and intends us, he says through Paul, he's given us all things to enjoy. Well, then what is the wisdom from the wisdom literature to know how to do that? Well, let's look at chapter 6 of Solomon's journal here in Ecclesiastes. Look at the outward appearance, the outward appearance of things. First two verses, chapter 6. Solomon says there is an evil. The word is ra'ah. It means something that creates misery and pain. There is something out there that creates a lot of suffering, which I've seen under the sun in, in this mortal life. And it's prevalent among all mankind. Bad case of the normals for most people. A man to whom God has given riches, God has given wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Play the old Opry, the whole deal. Everything this guy's ever wanted gets to do. Yet, God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. It's like he pays the mortgage, does all the work, and everybody else enjoys his stuff. He says, this is a vanity, havel, vaporous, severe affliction. So he says there's this guy that God has given Riches, wealth, honor, everything his heart desires, but God has not empowered him to enjoy, to extract enjoyment from what he has. In contrast, go back to chapter 5. In verse 18, he begins talking about another guy before this guy. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, Solomon says, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. And here's the guy saying, hey, let me tell you what I've learned is really wonderful. To eat. <laughs> I'm so glad it's there. To eat and to drink. By the way, why do you think he would give? doesn't sound very spiritual. Why would he begin the list with eating and drinking? Because when do you enjoy eating and drinking? In the past, future, or in the moment? In the moment. Unless it's Mexican food after seven, then we'll enjoy it for a couple days. But, but basically, by principle, the fact he says, here's what I've seen is good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, watch this, 
for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them, to receive the reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he will, I want this verse 19 on my tombstone. For he will not often consider the years of his life. The passing of his life is not a drag because he keeps, God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. This guy is as irritating to everybody who's miserable as anyone else. Because he's actually so enjoying his life, he doesn't mind his life passing by. Now what's interesting to me is that this guy, he is empowered by God to extract enjoyment from what he has. The other guy does not. Now what's really strange about this is that the other guy has more stuff. You see, with every gift, there's two parts to it. There's the gift itself, and then there's the capacity to enjoy the gift itself. So for example, I, I take you out to dinner, and as a gift, I order this great prime rib. Prime rib steak, oozing with butter, Ruth Chris type of steak. You know what I'm talking about? Here it is. But, but you forgot to mention to me two days before, in preparation for your new dentures, you had every tooth pulled out of your mouth. All of a sudden, there's the steak, there's the gift itself. But because you don't have the capacity to enjoy the steak, the gift becomes more of a curse. You understand? So there's two sides to every gift. The gift itself and the capacity to enjoy the gift. And so this first guy, he gets riches and wealth and God empowers him to enjoy. He's got the teeth. The second guy, like I said, he has been given riches and wealth and honor and everything his heart desires. So the second guy's got more stuff than the first guy. So which of the two guys ought to be happier? Easy question. Well, the guy with more stuff, right? But not here. Because it says God has not empowered him to enjoy. So everybody else enjoys this stuff, but not him. What is this word empowered? It's the Hebrew word shalat. I'll show you a little bit later how to remember that term. Shalat, the word actually means to be able to extract the enjoyment intended in a gift given to you. Again, both sides of the gift. The gift itself and the capacity to enjoy it, to extract enjoyment from it. God gives the shalat to the first guy and he doesn't shalat the second guy. How come? Well, that's the secret. That's the inward reality of things. Look at verses 3 to 6. Solomon goes on, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, back in these days, it was a sign of being favored by God. You were doing really well if you lived a long time and had a lot of kids. But he says, he says, This guy has hundred children, lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied. His nephish, his being, his deepest desires not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. He says, better is the one that was aborted. Better is the miscarriage, the one that never even sees life, than this guy who was given everything, and he does not give the ability, capacity to enjoy what he has. So he says in verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Now he says, this guy, 
He doesn't get shalat. Why? His soul is not satisfied. How come? Well, apparently because he's got an eye problem. And he's got an eye problem because he's got a nose problem. You notice what it says here in verse 6? Even if he lives a thousand years twice, does not enjoy good things. Guess what that word enjoy in the Hebrew is? Simply the word to see. He doesn't enjoy what he has because he doesn't see what he has. Well, why doesn't he see what he has? Well, because he's got a nose problem. Say, what nose problem? Well, look at the truth about things, verses 7 to 9. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. He just keeps wanting more and more, but seems not to be cutting it. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? All right. So where's wisdom going to help you here? What advantage does the poor man have? You don't have everything as much as everybody else. What advantage do you have, even though you're poor? How to walk before the living? What the eyes, here it is, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility, havel, vaporous, and striving after wind. Basically, the question is, why does God shalot the first guy and not the second guy, even though the second guy's got more stuff? The answer is, it says, because the second guy doesn't even see what he has. And he doesn't see what he has because he's got a nose problem. Again, look at the verse when he says at the very end, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires because the soul desires what everybody else has. Here's the nose problem. It's like God packs each one of us a bag. And God gives us as reward and gifts certain talents, ability, resources, family relationships. And then we got this bag filled. But we take our nose and we stick our nose where? In everybody else's bag. Because my soul desires what everybody else has. And so I lift my eyes off from my bag. I don't even see what I have to enjoy. Because I'm all consumed with sticking my nose in everybody else's bag. And oh man, I wish I had her hair, you know. Boy, I, I wish I had Cooper's arm, you know. Boy, I wish I could run like that. I wish I had that. Well, I wish I had that car. If I had that, oh, if I could play guitar. If I could write music like Jason. And what happens is while we have our nose stuck in everybody else's bag, we never see what's in our own. Therefore, that causes a serious heart problem. So what's the secret? What's the wisdom that Paul learned from Solomon? Well, you would have stumbled upon it back in chapter 2 if you were studying the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a man, here it is again, to eat and to drink, because <laughs> it's in the moment, enjoy the moment. There's nothing better for a man to eat and to drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Now watch this. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. That's exactly what the first guy did in chapter 5 when he said that he saw that all that he had was given him, verse 18, future of years of his life God had given him for this is his reward. In other words, have you ever tried to figure out 1 Thessalonians 5.18? I have people ask me, where in the Bible does it say something's the will of God? Well, you want to know the will of God? Hello, here it is. 
No, 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 no. I mean where it actually says something is the will of God. I mean, what if I want to do something I know is the will of God? It says this is the will of God. There's all kinds of places, but one is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And it says, now, give thanks. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, why would God command us with an imperative to give in everything, give thanks? This is because God has a need for thankful people. God feels like some of us adults, you know what? We give our kids so much and you never say thank you for nothing. <laughs> so God's this cosmic, miserable guy in heaven going, you know, I got all these people and all they give me was a half hour on Sunday morning to praise. And you really think God has this need for us to be given praise and thanks? Listen, in the morning, according to Isaiah 6, the seraphim are saying, holy, 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 worthy are you. He doesn't need our praise. And God does not need our thanks. He is sovereign. He's self-sufficient. Well, well then, if, it, if he doesn't have a need for it, why does he command us to give thanks? If it's not for him, it must be for whom? For us. Why? Because that's when God will shellack us. Remember shellat? Best way to remember it is that every time I acknowledge, I put my nose back in my bag so my eyes see what I've been given and I acknowledge everything that I've been given has been given to me by the hand of God as a reward to be enjoyed. And I give thanks. And I acknowledge it's from the gift of, from the hand of God. God shallots me. And that's when you simply say, God, thanks, shallot. I, just, I know it's dumb, but when I'm dead and gone, you're going to remember that point. Thanks, shallot. Thanks, shallot. And the point is, Holly and I, we will experience our 43rd anniversary this Thursday night. Now, Holly and I are not as um, attractive as we were when we first got married. But you want to know why 43 years later, I still so adore that lady? Jesus is listening to me, and I know it. Because just about every day, I acknowledge that Gahali is a gift to me from the hand of God to accomplish his purposes in my life and God shallots me, shallots me every day, gives me the, empowers me to extract enjoyment from the most brilliant, phenomenal woman I've ever met 43 years later. So whether that be your, your wife, your spouse, your children, I... God gave me Holly. Holly gave me two, two sons. My two sons gave me two daughters. My two daughters gave me six grandchildren. And I'm learning how to love the grandchildren, especially a little Christian. I remember he's six now, but when he was two, you know, they talk about the terrible twos. He went through the terrible twos terribly. Honestly, I'm telling the truth here. I watched this kid, and I remember thinking, oh, man, this kid, if something's not, he's going to end up being the Antichrist which is really a bummer from my loins, the Antichrist. When I teach the book of Revelation, I'm going to have to do a whole different perspective. Hi, I'm the father of the Antichrist, Paul the Antichrist. But he, he grew out of that, which is good. And part of that is I began to just acknowledge little Christian there, Christian Troy, Delahousse, that Christian Troy was a gift from the hand of God to me as one of my grandsons. And God began to shallot me. God began to change my heart, my perspective. And I started to really see in this kid, he's going to be great. 
He's going to be remarkable as all my grandchildren will be. You see, it all comes down to that eye problem, nose problem creates a heart problem. My eye problems created by my nose problem. I'm, I want what everybody else, what my soul desires everybody else had. Daryl, put your nose in your bag. Now my eyes, I see what I have. I acknowledge what I have. Everything, my family, my relationships, my health, as a gift from the hand of God, I give grateful thanks for that. God shallots me, empowers me to extract enjoyment, so much so I need nothing else to be happy. I remember a film some time ago called Meet Joe Black. I don't know if you're allowed to go to films, but just show me your, uh, yeah, yeah. Meet Joe Black. I'm not saying I go to movies. If I had, I would have gone to this one. In, in the book, just Meet Joe Black, uh, Brad Pitt plays death. He's Joe Black. He plays death. And he, he visits Anthony Hopkins, who is playing William Parrish, who is this very wealthy publishing tycoon. And death comes basically to take Parrish's life, take him into death. But, but he shows up, and, and Brad Pitt shows up as death. And like my wife said, death never looked so beautiful. But anyhow, he shows up, decides to take a vacation for a little while. So he takes a vacation with William Parrish. And it's a great story. But finally, at the 65th birthday, it's understood that uh, the death was going to take William Parrish at his 65th birthday. So this is things like Disneyland, because he's wealthy. And they've got all this beautiful lights and food, and everybody who's anybody is there at the, at the party of the 65th birthday of William Parrish. And finally, this huge cake, he blows out the candles. Then William Parrish, Anthony Hopkins, says this. I'm going to break precedence and tell you my one candle wish. That you would have a life as lucky as mine where you could wake up one morning and say, I don't want anything more. Contentment. The wisdom of contentment is when God so empowers you to enjoy what you have, so much enjoyment extracted, you don't need anything else to be happy. And you will become as irritating as I am to most people. Do you understand the wisdom? Does this make sense to you? Or do we have to go through it all over again? If you don't quite get it, come next hour. We have one more shot at this thing. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would begin to look in our own bags. And that the desires of our soul that would distract us from all that you've given us. Lord, you've given us jobs. You, you, you've given us homes. You've given us children. You've given us ones who love us. You've given us friends. You've given us a church with pastors who love us. Lord, uh, the, our bags are packed. Father, we ask your forgiveness for being so distracted and always looking at what everybody else had and thus being robbed of wisdom. While your heads are bowed, let me just ask you this. Right now, look, look, look in your bag. Metaphorically, look in your bag. What do you have there? What do you have there that you haven't really given much acknowledgement that it was placed there by the hand of God in your life for a purpose? Now acknowledge that. Give thanks for that. 
and understand that is one of the rewards God has given you to enjoy. And in that grateful heart, He will shalat you. He will empower you to extract enjoyment like you've never experienced before. And you will, you will have no need for nothing more. Father, place within our heart more than just a grateful heart. May we be quick to express that gratefulness for all that you put within our lives. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, no, they said, thanks a lot. <laughs> yes, let's thank Now, I have, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to Daryl three times, and the first time, I want you to know, I sat there last night, and I noticed this was turned, and the whole message, I'm sitting there going, holy, we put that up there crooked, and I didn't notice that it's every time he gets up, he turns it, which, which makes me wonder, what do you do when it's a set podium, and you can't move it? You, you turn, then you talk like this, okay, to people, I got it. Let's stand together. We... Um, we are grateful. Thank you for your word. Thanks for God's word and opening it, opening it to us. You know, wisdom oftentimes I find is, isn't wisdom oftentimes, it's not like you go, oh, I did, that's something totally new. Isn't it generally something that was there all along and you knew and it got turned and you went, oh, <laughs> I thought it was an oh, that. That's how I feel about giving thanks, having sit, having sat under this word is, now, when, I'm, when I read in my Bible, it says, give thanks, or, you know, I'm going, oh, there's more to that than just thank you. It's what God does in us as we do that. The psalmist knew that, and he's saying, I'll send you out with Psalm 28, verse 7. He said, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song, I shall thank him. I'll say thank you for all that you are and all that you give. May we do so today. You are dismissed. Thanks.